bless all of us. Wow. Um, so the last two weeks, Emily and I have been uh, laying the groundwork for the, um, the word coming to America. And that's where we're going to do today. And so what I plan to do is take you um, uh, from England today. Of course, people came from all over uh, Europe to the American shores in the 17th century. But I want to hone in on what was happening to England since we were primarily English colonies. And then we will move through the colonies uh, up until the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. Next week we'll pick up after the Revolutionary War and we will move throughout the 18th century. And so this will begin to bring us into our heritage. And um, so to begin with, we're going to do a little bit of <clears throat> background. Um, with the Reformation in Europe, we had four streams. We had Lutheranism that, of course, started in Germany. We had the Reformed tr tradition that was really nurtured a lot in Switzerland, and the Radical Reformation, and then the English Reformation. And so um, you might remember that the English Reformation didn't even come about until um, Henry VIII decided to split from the Catholic Church so that he could put away his first wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon, and marry uh, Anne Boleyn in the hopes that she could give him a male heir. So, of course, um, he had six wives. It was, um, two of them were beheaded, two of them died, and two of them lived. <laughs> so, um, he had quite the track record. But in 1534, he breaks from the uh, Pope and he seizes all the church lands and does away with all the monasteries and gives the land to his gentry. And so you begin to see country manor homes being established. Um, when he dies, his sole male heir comes to the throne, and we know him as Henry VI. Um, during this time, his advisors especially were uh, of the Anglican Church. And, or not Anglican, Anglican, yeah, Anglican is England, and we call it Episcopal in the United States. So the theology moves away from Catholicism to Protestantism, and at this point, there was, there was no persecution at this point. But when he dies at the ripe old age of 14, um, his uh, half-sister Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, his, uh, Henry VIII's first, um, who was uh, raised as a Catholic. Her mother, of course, was from Spain, and Spain was deeply Catholic. And so she decided she wanted to restore the one true church, and she was called Bloody Mary because she burned Protestants 
at the stake. And so there was a huge, um, a huge persecution during, during her time of anyone that was of the Protestant persuasion. Her first person that she burned was Archbishop Cranmer, who was the, um, the Anglican bishop who had encouraged and, uh, Henry VIII to be able to go ahead and divorce. Yes? I am blown away. I've never heard this history before. Oh, okay. Um, so she ruled from 53 to 58? Uh-huh. Okay. And I guess you're going to go into what happened next. Uh-huh. <laughs> but how, how could she do that? Oh, she had all the power. So she, 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 it was a deep persecution with, with anyone. And the government couldn't do a thing about it? No, no, she was the government. But I mean, like, there was no, 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 no. There was no separation between church and, and state. state. Yeah. This is one reason why the Puritans, yeah, right. So that's where we're going. So you're, you're already ahead. Okay. Um, so the Protestants under Mary had three options to continue as is, uh, to go, in other words, to go to, uh, go back to the Roman Catholic Church, to go underground, which most of them did, um, and they would meet in uh, the woods or in a, an abandoned barn someplace, and everything was very secretive. Or they could go into exile to have freedom. And at that point, uh, Geneva was more, Geneva, Switzerland was more or less the place that they mostly graveled, gra gravitated to. But when she, Mary died, and Elizabeth came to the throne again. Um, she reestablished the Anglican Church, and so the exiles returned as Puritans. And their message <laughs> that they brought with them back to England was, return to the Word or burn in hell. They were very, <laughs> very grace-oriented, right? No. <laughs> So Elizabeth had to choose how to function with these strongly held religious beliefs. There was Catholics, there were Puritans, and then there were the Church of England, which she was in charge of, which was the Anglican Church. And so she chose the middle way and decided not to put people to death on either side of this situation. But... Um, <clears throat> The Puritan movement itself split between 1580 and 1590, and so the, there were Presbyterians and Separatists. Presbyterians were largely from Scotland, of course, and um, so they continued working within the framework of the Anglican Church with one difference. Um, the Anglican Church was, of course, built on the, the worldly model of hierarchy. So you had um, Queen Elizabeth as the head of the Church of England, and then the power filtered outward. But the Presbyterians decided to turn it on its head, and so you ended up with synods and so forth that went out this way. And so... Um, uh, 
because, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me just go ahead and go through this real quick. So the separatists were those that wanted to separate from the Anglican Church altogether. And this is what, what we, when we usually say Puritan, we're usually thinking of the people who completely separated. Um, so um, as the years grow, this stream of Puritanism begins to have branches. So you end up with Baptists who believed totally in adult immersion rather than child sprinkling. Um, you ended up with Puritans that were Congregationalists. <clears throat> you ended up with Presbyterians like from the, the Scotland. Um, the, you still had the Episcopalians in America. I'm getting ahead of myself a little. Anglicans in, the, in, the, in England. And um, later you began to get Quakers. And they were so named because their leaders said, um, you should be so full of the Holy Spirit that you will tremble. And so people called them Quakers because they were so spirit-filled, okay? Did you know there's a little Quaker church right off Charlotte in Nashville? No, but I don't doubt it. Because um, that's one of the things we're gonna, we're gonna do. We're, we're going to go over to America and we're gonna hit the Eastern Seaboard. And then next week when we get uh, post-revolutionary war, we're gonna come west to Tennessee, okay? <clears throat> so, uh, when Elizabeth died because she was not married and had no children, the throne reverted to uh, James V of, or he might have been 5th or 6th, of Scotland. So, he was very familiar, very familiar with Presbyterians. And he hated them. He, he founded them to, he found them to be a very disgruntled and difficult to uh, reason with group of people. So um, he became James I of England um, and when he found out quite by accident that, um, that these Puritans called their leaders presbyters, just that one word triggered something in him and I mean he began to go after the Puritans with vengeance and so you if you were living in England under James the first you couldn't afford to be Catholic and you could not afford to be a Puritan he hated the Geneva Bible that these Puritans had been feeding off of um, largely because it had in the margins there were descriptions, and um, it was almost like a commentary, a running commentary, if you will, that um, basically had established that uh, that the Puritans were a covenanted people of God, and that um, and they wanted to take this. Uh, concept and superimpose it over England and help 
helped to establish England as God's chosen people. And they felt very strongly that because they did not seize the moment under Edward VI, the, the young teenager, um, that England was being punished as God punished those who walked away from covenant with him. And so they, they felt like they were being punished, that England was being punished by God because they weren't in covenant relationship. So James, James hated it. So he decided to issue uh, another version. He hired 47 different scholars to translate from the uh, Latin Vulgate into the English vernacular so that the common person could read it. And um, he said, I want absolutely no commentaries in the margins. Okay? <laughs> so, um, one of the things that, that he did do to change the position of worship when he worshiped in Scotland, he was on the floor with all the other people. But when he became James I of England and became the Church of England, he said, enough with this presbytery stuff. I'm going to put myself above the people. And so he built a balcony so that he could worship looking down on, on them so that when they looked up to him, they would be looking up to him as the Church of England, okay? As head of the Church of England. So, <clears throat> under James I, the Puritans preached very seriously that the only way to politically save England was to live as covenanted, covenanted Christians. And so, um, James didn't like that much, so they fled to Holland and then took a boat over to Plymouth, Massachusetts in America in 1620. Under, under King James I, were they still using the Book of Common Prayer, or did he still use oh, the other direction? Oh, good question. Um, they, they were using the Book of Common Prayar. They were. He just started persecuting more of those marginal kind of people. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm just full of curiosity. I, I think I mentioned to you that... Um, in doing some genealogical studies, I found that the first male um, in, in our family to come over to the United States was in 1606, so three years after James I took over. So I am curious whether he was a Catholic escaping James I or if he was a Puritan escaping James I. But I'm, I'm just really curious about that. Um, it wasn't for economic gain, I can tell you that, <laughs> in 1606. Um, okay, under Charles I, um, oh, let me just say that he, he came over from Holland, where Puritans were safe to worship, so I'm kind of thinking he was pr probably a Puritan. Okay, so under Charles I, um, now I haven't shown you a picture of him, but Charles I is um, the son of James I. Okay, so he's still from the Stuart succession, still king of Scotland, Ireland, and something else, uh, as well as 
England. And he continues the oppression and he adds physical abuse to this. So it created a second wave of exiles away from England. And this was the 1630 Massachusetts Bay Colony group um, that established basically Boston. Okay. So um, in 1642, Oliver Cromwell decided to lead an, uh, basically, uh, they revolted against Charles I. And it not end well for Charles I. <laughs> they took him to the Whitehall banqueting house and they took his head off on a scaffolding right in front of the, you know, and so for 11 years, Oliver Cromwell became the head of uh, state in uh, England, and so Puritans reigned supreme for those 11 years. So, um, but interestingly enough, um, okay, I'm going to flip over here. Okay, but the Bible that goes with the Puritans is this Tyndale version. And um, I mentioned two weeks ago that he wrote a book on how to understand the scriptures. He wrote while he was in Germany, so he translated the Greek scriptures into English. And his notes, as I've said, were full of Lutheran theology and expounded on grace. But as he studied, he saw the theme of covenant relationship with God in Deuteronomy 28, um, how God chooses his people, creates a covenant with them, and he will bless them if they will serve him. And Tyndall, Tyndall is terrified and chooses covenant over grace. So in his second edition of the English translation, he had what we've already talked about. England was the Latter-day Covenanted people and was his chosen. And therefore, if they kept his covenant, then they would continue to be his people. Parliament was considered to be the equivalent of the Old Testament elders of the land. Uh, Edward VI was considered as Josiah, the young um, child king who came to the throne at eight years of age, who rediscovered the law of God. And under Mary, he saw that God was cursing England because they had broken the covenant when they had the chance to reform under him. So, his cry was, let's restore the ancient church. Does that resonate with any of you guys? <laughs> Are you beginning to see where we're coming from? <laughs> okay. So, the Puritans' contribution to Tyndale's vision about God's country was that if they went to America and established the pure unadulterated ancient church that it would be shine a light back to England and they would be invited home to save the country. That was their vision. But in 1634 the New England Puritans finally gave up on England, didn't think it was going to happen, and they transferred all these metaphors to America. Mm. And so, 
England, they, they themselves were the covenanted chosen people. And uh, England became their Egypt. Okay? In the way they interpreted it. Uh, the Atlantic was like the Red Sea. Uh, Canaan, the Promised Land, became America. And the Canaanites were the Indians. And so they felt <coughs> that they had the imperative, as the Old Testament Jewish people, to kill the Canaanites. So you're beginning, oh, since Jill let me just thinking about it, how, how in the name of being chosen people of God that they began to persecute others. Always, always throughout history, the persecuted always become persecutors. So, by the 17th century, uh, America was very diverse in its understanding of Scripture. And so the southern colonies, um, so we're talking Virginia, uh, West Virginia, um, South Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina, eventually Georgia became more or less um, Anglican and changed their names to Episcopalian after the Revolutionary War. So today we're pre-Revolutionary War, so they still consider themselves to be Anglican. Did they, did they uh -huh. change their name because they stopped recognizing that the Church of England? Okay. That is the head of their... Yes. Very good. Very good. Yes. So the Puritans were the primary uh, settlers in Massachusetts and some of the northern colonies on the eastern seaboard. And of course the French and Spanish had the Southwest and Florida. Um, now, between 1680 and 1760, the population in America grew from 2,500, wait, 250,000 to 2 million. So there was just a great deal of, yes. I just have a simple question. Uh -huh. The <coughs> doors that you find on today in the Episcopalian churches, is there architectural symbolism to that? Uh, yes, there is. And I look, I'll get I'll do, I'll do that next week too. I've got two things I want to address next week. Okay, good. Okay. Now Roger Williams uh, in Rhode Island left Massachusetts because he was so disgusted about the closed nature of you know who could walk the straight and narrow and be within fellowship of the Puritan Church, and so he left all of that, and um, he went up to, Pennsylvania, um, to um, Rhode Island, and he said, we're open to all the faiths. He went out and he said, um, brothers and sisters, using this reading of scripture is wrong, and we shouldn't be going out to the Indians and killing them. Um, obviously, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, now, William Penn, that we're familiar with from the Quaker Oats. His picture is on Quaker Oats. Uh, he settled in Pennsylvania with the, the Quakers. The Anglicans became the official religion of Virginia. 
interestingly enough, they got a charter from Char Charles I. And uh, the Roman Catholics basically found their way to Maryland and, and settled there. So we're talking pre-Revolutionary War. Not now, of course, but this is our background. Now, in 1734, from 1734 to the eve of the Revolutionary War, there was a mass evangelism of the unchurched because along with the people who had fled the old country for religious freedom, there were others who were unchurched and settled in the United States. And so there was, it was like uh, evangelism was the name of the game. Now, this wouldn't have really been heard of on the mainland. Anybody want to venture a guess why? Yes, exactly. No, there was no choice um, it, to begin with. And so the fact that you had all these choices was almost like, it, it, it was confusing, it was overwhelming, and everyone felt like uh, to save the unchurched, they had to evangelize. It wasn't just a single group. It was the Society of Friends, which we know as the Quakers. It was the Methodists, the Universalists, the Unitarians, the Shakers, and the Free Will Baptists. It was like, it, it wasn't just one group. So, with that background, I'm going to go, we're going to go now to architecture. So, <clears throat> the meeting house was what was birthed when they came to the Americas because they were not only worshiping together, they were living in, in community with each other. And so the meeting house was established. Oh, here's another thing. Do you remember the streams of money that came in to build the Romanesque and the Gothic churches? Oh, okay, so help me out with the streams of income. I'll get you started. Oh. Oh. No, no, no. Like in each country. In each country. So it, the, the crown would certainly contribute to the building of, and what were you saying? Taxing the people. Taxing the people. They, they were required to tithe. So it was their tithes and offering. And, and I'm going to give you a hint. Martin Luther just went ballistic over this one. Yes, penances. Okay. So they escape all of that. They come to a blank slate in America, and what kind of funds do they have? Right. <laughs> so are we going to see these fabulous structures that we can go and see in Europe? No. Because it, it's a modest income. People are giving out of their own resources as a community. Kind of like a barn raising, except they were raising meeting houses. Yeah, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is the old ship meeting house in Hingham, Massachusetts. It's one of the oldest uh, meeting houses of the Puritans that still stands. Now, this this goes back to another thing that um, 
when I first started teaching uh, at, at the university, when I first started teaching the history of architecture and interiors, it dawned on me one day, the only structures that we can really study up until the time of Henry VIII are civic, but mostly religious buildings because they were built with materials that were meant to last. Um, when, when I was working at Earl Swenson Associates, we got to be a part of building the Skirmerhorn. And the thing that was just the most amazing to everyone in the studio was that in the programming, the requirement was that we would select finishes that would last 350 years or longer. I mean, you don't see that every day. In America, we build a house, and we build something, <coughs> we tear it down, uh, you know. Um, right, right, right. And Jerry brought out an exception to that, which was the Roman houses that we see. And the reason that they're an exception is because Vesuvius basically covered um, Pompeii and Herculaneum. And as a result, when they were discovered in 1711, the houses were still intact because of that. Um, the wear and tear of the centuries had only left Roman buildings, like uh, civic buildings, uh, temples, and so forth. Um, so really, up until... And, and at this point in history, where we're at right now, Herculaneum and Pompeii hadn't even been discovered. Okay? So they're still operating off of um, vis visuals of uh, temples and, um, and civic buildings. Now then, um, okay, I said all that. Where was I going with it? Oh, I've lost my train of thought. I hate that when it happens. Where was I going with it? Did anybody know? You were talking about funding. Where was funding coming from? Oh, okay. So that's probably where I was coming back to, is that um, up until this his, this point this point in history, everything was built with materials that would last for centuries. Now we come to America, and some of the very first meeting houses are gone. Okay, so we're very lucky to have this one, for example. And as you can see, it's just a clapboard structure. Um, it's basically a rectangle, and the main entrance is a little vestibule that would be built to buffer the cold so that you could come in and you wouldn't be opening up into the main hall that was being heated. You would open up um, <coughs> onto a vestibule that would buffer those. I was reminded of that last weekend when Connie and I went up to Rochester College and uh, we were in Michigan and, and that's what they still do. <laughs> okay, now what's really interesting is even though this is a very simple building um, they did bring over a Gothic spire with them. Of course, it was not made of 
of um, stone, and it was not decorated with crockets, but it was nevertheless a steeple. Well, it becomes known as a steeple, not a spire. Okay. What was the purpose? Was the purpose to, to know where the church was? Yeah, yeah. From you, you could look anywhere in the community, but you would know where the place of worship was. So um, this is the interior, and it goes to exactly what we were talking about. Uh, what is the most important thing in this meeting house? What is the purpose? The preaching and the and reading scripture. Um, and you will begin to see these flat, um, I'm just blanking on the name, but it's a canopy that's hard surface so that when the preacher's uh, voice hits that it will communicate to the whole. Wow. It's like their projection system. Yeah. Right. It was, it was their AV. Yeah. And, of course, it is front and center. And these, <laughs> these boxes served somewhat of a purpose. They kept the men and women from, you know, sitting together. But also, because they were uh, closed on the floor, you could br bring foot warmers. And then it would create a sense of heat. Because so you were there for a while. So you wanted your feet to be uh, at least not freezing off while you were listening to the proclamation of the word. We didn't have 20-minute sermons back then. <laughs> okay. So there were no chimneys or anything like that? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. You brought your own. And they had pot-bellied stoves. I've been in the one in um, in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. I've sat and been doing Ben Franklin. From, okay. And they said he was notorious for getting up and leaving after like 15 minutes. <laughs> Because he, he felt his work at home was much more important than what was going on there. He showed up. He made his appearance. Uh-huh. And then left. He had to go fly a kite or something. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, okay. Fish and visitors smelled three days. So what? Sermons smelled. Fish and visitors smelled three days. Right, sermon, right. Yeah. Sermons smelled three days. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, <clears throat> so you can see that the people sat in the galleries and on the floor. And, and they purchased their boxes, the families purchased. Correct. And um, you can still see, you can see the beginning of, in the Psalter. They, they had a salt, Massachusetts Bay Psalter. And um, so here you see that. Um, lighting was pretty scarce. You just got candles. So it's, it's um, you can kind of see why they would meet earlier in the day because they wouldn't be able to see each other or the word at night. So were the balcony boxes, were those reserved for the wealthier people or the poor? Actually, the, the poor people. Mm -hmm. Good question. And here in Tennessee, the slaves, over in Smyrna, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. um, the AME's churches. Well, the Church of Christ, the Rock Springs Church of Christ, had the slaves as balcony. Mm -hmm. Wow. My ancestor donated the land for Oh, wow. And that's Rock Springs? Church of Christ, yeah. I mean, Rock Springs Road in Smyrna. In Smyrna. Okay, I'm glad to know about that one. I'm going to look that up. Now, here, here is a Quaker meeting house, and <clears throat> sometimes they call them broadsides, and you can kind of see why, because 
they they were broadsided, and they they had the very simple post and beam kind of windows, um, and this was a nod to the pediments that they would have been exposed to, um, you know, but they're kind of like eaves. And um, I think I would want to go see this in the spring as pictured here because it's pretty plain. And it was very austere on the inside as well. No padded pews. <laughs> no padded pews, correct. Um, probably the originals were benches. This was probably an 18th century edition or maybe 19th century edition to have backs. So, this reminds me of the branch Davidian cult. You know how they sat around on those bleachers like <laughs> Really? It, it, the one in Texas, you know, if you watch the David Koresh video. Okay. They were sitting on bleachers. Okay. Um, now let's go a little, oh shoot. Okay, I'll, cover, I'll hurry through these. Now in the south, uh, like Virginia and below, um, they they were um, they had charters from Charles the first so they were able to erect buildings that had more sustainability to it and so this is the oldest Anglican church in America in Smithfield Virginia um, you can see okay I'm gonna sh okay so this is looking at it from the west and it has one door one portal instead of three like in the old world and this is the west face, I'm um, the west face, and this is, uh, you can kind of see that they were trying to bring over Gothic elements. Um, oh, and here's the cemetery beside it. Okay. Um, this is Old St. Luke's in Smithfield, Virginia. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. This is the inside. So you can see that it's built a lot like a ship. <coughs> And, um, and that it still has the screen that separates the laity from the presbytery. Yes, they do. <coughs> yeah, I decided to, to do the English strain. Yeah, but they do. Um, now, Charles Wren over in London was having a huge effect influence architecturally on what was coming over to America. He was the one that built uh, St. Paul's in uh, England. And did y'all do that last week? Did she show you St. Paul's? Okay, I was too. So basically, um, Charles Wren was massively influential in getting um, the fires that you see um, on a block form. And this could almost be straight out of Nashville, Tennessee, almost. You know, um, this is in London. This is the interior in London. And then I'm gonna show you, these images were copyrighted, so I decided to The, the downtown um, church near the public library, I think it's Methodist. It looks very, very, okay. So this, it's, it's just hard to understate 
the importance of Charles Wren on the way American churches look during this time. And that's the interior. Do you remember how it, it almost looks, <laughs> it's, it's not as fancy, but it's almost virtually the same as St. Martin's of the Field. Okay, I'm going to let you guys go. And uh, next week we'll pick up with post-revolutionary and go into, we're going to come into Tennessee. Mm-hmm.